Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today our guest really needs no introduction. Dedicated to improving education in Florida as governor, he introduced some of the most innovative school reforms in the history of the country. Now working to reform all schools through his Foundation for Excellence in Education, you likely know him by his first and last name. Welcome to the EdCast, Governor Jeb Bush. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. Now, Education Next called you the Education Governor. For our listeners, and yes, please brag, <laughs> what do you think they meant by that? And what are some of your proudest reforms in Florida? Well, I don't, I'm not sure what they meant by it, but I can tell you that what what Florida is known for is uh, working in a concerted way, in a comprehensive way, with a suite of reforms that when implemented together over time yielded the greatest learning gains of, uh, particularly in the early grades of any state in the country. So we're one of, the last 10 years we're one of three states that narrowed the achievement gap between race and ethnicity. Uh, we're, we, we went, improved on the fourth grade NAEP numbers in 10 years time, two grade levels. We went from 29th out of 31 states in 1998 in the fourth grade NAEP to sixth in the country out of 50. We implemented broad-based reform, not just one thing. More school choice, more than any state in the country. First state to have a third grade elimination of social promotion in third grade. We put reading coaches in every, every school, middle school and high, um, elementary school to teach teachers how to teach reading because they don't do a very good job of that. Uh, we had um, a school recognition program that gave money for schools that showed improvement, and we graded schools A through F, 100% based on student learning. So all of that combined created uh, a, a, some pretty good results that you know put us into the game at least. I mean, we're not we're not number one, but we were way at the bottom, and now we're above the national average. So of all the things you just listed, what were you probably most proud of personally? I'm most proud of the fact that this was done in a comprehensive way uh, and that people, I worked with a team of people that had dogged determination, if you will, and looked at this over the long haul. I think some of the time, we live in a culture, at least I sense we live in a culture of immediate gratification. So every solution, every problem has got to be bam, boom, done, you know, let's move to the next thing. And when you create a situation where two generations of neglect, particularly of students that live in, whose families have lower income, and we've tolerated uh, what my brother, I think, accurately called the, the, um, the soft bigotry of low expectations, which is a very powerful and correct term, sadly. It's not going to take, if it took a generation to create the, the problems we face, you know, we, we have to have the patience and the determination of a half a generation to improve it. So it, it, what I'm proud of is that we stuck with it and people gave us time to do it and um, the success is there for people to see. And even, even the most grumpy opponents, and there are a lot of them still, of uh, comprehensive reform will admit that we've had gains. Now you're kicking off the National Summit on Education Reform this month. How is this summit going to be different than the previous two? Uh, we have a, this will be our third year. Uh, we have more people coming, which is good. We have more opinion leaders and um, uh, elected officials that in, the, in more states are involved. 
Uh, Chris Christie's are one of our keynote speakers. Joel Klein will come and kind of give the New York story now that he's moved on, is moving on. Uh, Arnie Duncan is going to speak. Uh, so we have a diverse group of people, a larger number of them, and we're going to talk about uh, two exciting um, things that we're involved in, one of which uh, I can talk about, which is the Digital Learning Council. We've created a group of about 90 people, men and women, that are involved in digital learning and virtual learning. And we're creating a blueprint, a roadmap, if you will, of how to uh, embrace digital learning and how important it would be to do so um, in all sorts of fashions. But I think the principal one will end up being a hybrid fashion where content will be beamed into classrooms. And teachers will have a slightly different mission, but an equally important one. Uh, and the best content uh, will be delivered because of, of scale. And as we know, I mean, the internet has improved productivity, improved delivery of all sorts of content that we could have never imagined before. And it, it, it will do the same in education. So we're going to unveil a series of recommendations. And frankly, we're going to grade states based on where they stand and how they can improve and follow that over a period of time and then help tear down the walls of resistance to this idea. It seems like there is a lot of momentum around education reform right now with yeah. Waiting for Superman, Michelle Reed, dedicated media coverage with charter schools. How do we maintain this mainstream conversation, say, a year from now when maybe the media has moved on? Well, I, I don't think they will because I think there is, in a, in a world of, of, of deep partisan divide, I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, that I am disturbed about about the Obama administration. But pu putting that aside for a moment, this is one place where there's a huge commonality of interest on education reform. And the president deserves credit. And be if he continues on this path, this will be a Switzerland, if you will, of policymaking, I think, where Republicans and Democrats can find common ground. It's Switzerland trying to become Finland. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's true. Good way of looking at it. You can use that one. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good way of saying it, but at least there's the food fight will, um, I don't think, will, you know, will subside at, at the frontier's edge here. And as we aspire to Finland or Korea or Singapore or whatever your favorite uh, country is in that regard in terms of education, you know, you're, uh, this, the lack of partisanship fighting just because someone's got an R by their name or D by their name, not having that will be helpful. And I think it'll sustain the conversation nationally. At what point in your push to reform will you be satisfied? Well, first of all, a world-class country like the United States should have a world-class education system. The only measurement of world-class is student outcomes. So I, yeah, I think the best measurement of success would be a huge crisis. And the crisis, that's normally not the way you would measure success, right? But the huge crisis would be an avalanche of college and career-ready students that graduate from high school and automatically know they're going to college and automatically have a, you know, a mental path on how they're going to get there and achieve it and uh, demanding that government take care of building this capacity so that they can achieve it. Because right now a third of American high school seniors or senior equivalents that should be seniors are college or career ready. That is a tragedy for a great country. It's not acceptable, it's not sustainable. So I think the best measurement would be closer to 100%. And imagine what a wonderful crisis that would be. 
be fantastic. Right now, our audiences, teachers and educators from across the country, not necessarily policymakers, but people in classrooms and parents right. of children, what can they do to chip away at a poor education system? Well, I think the one uh, common thing that I hear from teachers uh, concerned about all sorts of reform, changes hard, they've got a challenging job to begin with, and, uh, and then to ask them to, you know, for, to accept, embrace systemic change is not an easy thing to do. The one thing that um, teachers, I think, correctly say is that they wish that parents would ex ex accept the responsibility of being the first teacher of their children. That if that happened, a lot of the, a lot of the harder edge reforms that seem difficult to embrace would be easy to embrace because children, A, would come prepared to learn, uh, B, they would have a supportive family that would enhance what the teacher is trying to do. Uh, and, and so, I mean, if I had a, if a, a fairy godmother landed on my shoulder and whispered in my ear, I could have anything I wanted to accelerate student learning. It would be loving, informed, uh, engaged parents around children from the get-go, from, from the earliest age. Uh, and supporting them kind of as the organizing principle around of their lives. And it's the, it's the place that gives the greatest joy. I mean, imagine I'm, we're sitting here in fancy, fancy Harvard land, and every parent of every student in this school is incredibly proud that their students have achieved getting into one of the finest universities on the planet. That pride uh, is well justified and it's probably the greatest joy that any parent could have to see their children gain the power of knowledge. So if that became a cultural value in our country, we wouldn't have to have a food fight about education reform. It would probably be a lot easier for sure. Speaking of children, there's a picture of you reading Stuart Little to a little girl in a classroom and she just looks thrilled, excited by both book and likely the fact it's being read to her by the governor. The goofy governor probably. <laughs> Probably wearing a goofy hat and trying to get people excited about reading. Well, this one you never had on, but we asked this to many of our guests. What were some of your favorite books that were read to you as a child? Well, I fortunately had a mom that read to me a lot. And um, what's the, is it the Tales of Babar? Is it the? Oh, yeah, Babar, this, the elephant. Babar, the elephant, yeah. beautiful. I, actually, I loved books that had great illustration. Yeah. I'm supposed to love reading, I guess. I like the pictures. <laughs> uh, but my, my mom read to us a lot. Um, I, I've maintained a joy for reading. It's a, a great way to kind of sharpen the saw intellectually, mentally. Um, I really was lucky to have both my mom and dad to be acti actively involved. Uh, Curious George was another classic that I loved uh, to read when I was a kid. And um, I continue to read. As I said, I'm reading right now the, uh, the letters of uh, Patrick Moynihan. What an incredible writer. Uh, uh, it's edited by a guy who went into the the library, you know, to, to the archives. Uh, this guy was an incredibly prolific uh, writer, had a fantastic life, great intellectual, one of the few intellectuals that actually made it made it in the uh, political world. It's kind of a hard hard world to speak in five syllable word, word, words constantly, but it seems like uh, Senator Moynihan did a fantastic job of that. So I'm enjoying that book. Next on the list is uh, Decision Point. I've already been scolded by my brother. Uh oh for not reading the book, but I told him, and it seemed to warm his heart, that I bought 50 for Christmas gifts uh, for everybody I know. You so can probably get those autographed, too. Uh, maybe, maybe, but the important point was he seemed to say that, okay, you don't have to read it if you buy 50. <laughs>
Governor Bush, it has been a pleasure. Where might people be able to find more information about the Foundation for Excellence in Education? You can go online. You can, if you go to, uh, let's see, if you go to Excel in Ed, www.excelined.com, you will get to the website. Uh, or you can um, seek it out on the, on the Internet through, it's the Foundation for Excellence in Education. We'd love to have people look at it, critique what we're doing, encourage us, um, contribute to us, support us in every way. It'd be great. I know, you, Governor, you're running up to a, a seminar in a couple minutes, but teaching is a thankless profession sometimes. 100,000 people right now. Any teachers you want to thank? I love, you know, look, without effective teachers, there's no possible way that we can regain our footing uh, for the next generation of Americans. And I'm 57, so think about it this way. I don't want to be selfish about this, but we need young, talent, talented, knowledge-based workers that takes care of all of us aging, selfish baby boomers. And te without teachers, it won't happen. Teachers do a spectacular job. They should be rewarded for the excellence when they do it. And um, hopefully with reform, that'll happen more often than not. Great having you on the EdCast, appropriately the education governor on the education podcast of Harvard. Thank you so much, Governor Bush. Thank you. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.